Hello, fans of mysteries and fans of horses. Welcome to Horse Mysteries. My name is David Dedrick. My name's Lisa Williamson. And today, we have a new story for everyone out there. This episode is going to be called... Oh, I have to guess, don't I? (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to ask you a question. Okay, well, before we get to that, let me ask you a question. Okay. Let's do a little bit of uh, something that I like to call horse bits. And today we're going to talk about... Oh, what are we going to talk about? I should have thought about this before we started the show. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, vascular system of the hoof. The vascular system of the hoof is quite interesting. Basically, there's something called the sensitive lamini, which is like a sock that surrounds the major bone in the foot. The major bone being called the pedal bone or the coffin bone, or it's got lots of different names. But The third phalanx. Yeah, third phalanx, ospedis, whatever. There's lots of different <laughs> names. P3. So anyway, yeah, this this thing surrounds the... This lamina. Yeah, the, yeah, the sensitive lamini surrounds the coffin bone, kind of like a sock and... Um, one of its one of its primary purposes is to help suspend the bone because it's got all these little papillae, like little finger-like projections. There's between, say, 500 and 650 interlocking leaves that all interlock, kind of like Velcro, the the bone to the inside of the hoof wall. Um, so so that's, there's sensitive lamini and there's insensitive lamini. Mm-hmm. Is the insensitive lamina part of that interlocking part, or yes. is it separate? Yeah, so you've got the dermis on the outside, and then there's all these, there's three layers of the hoof wall itself, and then you've got the insensitive lamina and sensitive lamina. So there's, yeah, many, many layers as it comes in towards the the part. So the sensitive lamina is not only the major source of blood supply, you refer to it as a vascular mm-hmm. region, but it's also the major source of nerve supply as well, okay. because... As you go outwards from the sensitive lamini to the, the, the dermis, the, the hoof itself, it's all keratinized tissue that has no nerve supply. Yeah. So the same as our fingernails, sure. essentially. So Just why you can trim it and right, yeah. p- put hot shoes on it. Exactly, and, yeah. yeah. But yeah, going back inside those layers into this thing. And I always make the analogy when I'm teaching, it's kind of like you've got your boot, You've got your sock, you've got your foot. And so the boot is the hoof wall, the sock is like the sensitive lamini, and then your foot is kind of like the bone. But one of the things that the sensitive lamini does, as you said, it's it's a highly vascularized region. And yeah, if you see pictures of it, it's like a whole bunch of veins all in the shape of a hoof. It's pretty Um, amazing. And they have made like, they actually like pumped acrylic into the you know, obviously mm-hmm. into a, not into a living horse, but into a horse that had passed on. Mm-hmm. And they were able to create like a, a model of the vascular system of mm-hmm. the, uh, well, yeah. of the lamin, the vascular system of the lamina. Right. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. 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 It's very, yeah, very cool. And so, I mean, other, other things that, that this thing does, like if you think about the horse's heart, it pumps blood with a lot of force. Um, and you think about how far away that heart is from the ground because the body or the heart has to send um, blood out to all parts of the body. But when it gets down to the foot, it kind of pools there in that vascular area, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the sensitive lamini. But now we've got a lowered force of heart and we also have to go against gravity for it to complete the cycle and go back up to the heart. And so there's this whole complex mechanism within the foot itself that allows the foot to actually pump the blood out of this vascular region. When the horse is in motion. Yeah, when the horse is in motion. So basically we think of a a hoof as something that's very static, very hard. I always kind of thought of, you know, in my mind, I kind of pictured the horse's hooves like pieces of brick or bowling (laughs) balls or something like that, right? They had no ability to flex and move. Sure. But actually, if you think of it, the in the heel region, there is no hoof wall back there no. so the hoof is only in the front and on the sides and quarters and the, the very this is about two inches wide yeah. that the heel One and a half is inch to yeah. Two, yeah but yeah well, let's say three centimeters yeah so that allows for some expansion and contraction there but mm-hmm. even on the quarters which is back towards the heel of the hoof wall itself yeah you can get some movement yeah yeah that's about what you would leave for a horse 
like when you're shooing a horse, you leave about one eighth mm-hmm. of uh, an inch of an yeah. inch for for that expansion. that little bit of expansion. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. you can see it on a horseshoe sometimes when you take mm-hmm. the shoe off, and you can see where the foot has moved and. Yeah, and so inside the hoof, we talked about that bone, and attached to the bone, there's a piece of cartilage called the lateral cartilage, and it extends up above the coronet band, which is what grows the hoof, same as our like, cuticle or whatever, into the kind of hair-covered part of yeah, the, the horse's leg. Yeah, the coronet band is where the hair ends on the horse's leg and the hoof begins. Right. So if you're looking at a hoof, or you're picturing a horse's leg and the hoof, where that hair stops, that's the coronet band. Mm-hmm. And so the function of this um, lateral cartilage is just to help with the expansion and contraction of the heel. So Mm -hmm. we've got a heel that is open. We've got a hoof wall that actually does have a little bit of flexibility in it just because of the way the material is created. We've got inside the lateral cartilage and their primary job is to expand and contract. Mm -hmm. And then we have this whole big area right above the bone, which is called the digital cushion or... Plantar cushion. Yeah, plantar cushion is another name for it. Um, And it's just kind of, again, the analogy I always use when I'm teaching is, you know, those running shoes with the really thick soles on them. That's kind of what it is. It's just a cartilaginous mass, Mm -hmm. and it's designed to absorb shock and help with expansion and contraction. Mm -hmm. So when the horse puts its foot down on the ground, the first thing that hits the ground, um, because the horse usually, if they're sound, they're going to land heel first, and they're going to land on this big V-shaped thing that we call the frog, which is, yeah, just... uh, The insensitive plantar cushion, basically. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so the frog compresses up into the foot, and that pushes into the digital cushion, which pushes out against the lateral cartilages, and all that opens the heel up. And then when the horse takes its foot off the ground, then everything kind of snaps shut, and that's what squishes the blood out of the sensitive lamina back to the heart. So completing that circuit Mm -hmm. that started Mm -hmm. with that blood pumping. Yeah. And I wonder if humans are about the same, I would think, because like if you're, if you ever remember being a kid and jumping off uh, the roof of a house, for instance, not a high roof of a house, but, Mm -hmm. and if you let your legs dangle for a little bit before you jumped, how painful it was because the blood had come down, it rested at the bottom of your foot. And when you jumped on it, it was quite very painful. So I think you just, you're uh, squeamish about that, dear? No, I was just thinking that happens to me all the time when I'm sitting at work and my legs are dangling off of my chair. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> so there's a similar thing that we also probably need to be walking mm-hmm. around in order to keep the blood pumping because yeah. we're also battling exactly. gravity and, and yeah. the distance of heart to, to to foot, but it's more pronounced than a horse because they have four of them and they're much bigger than mm-hmm. us and have way more of a... Blood is way more important to their their whole system because it's all part of how they, how they power themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for that. That was very good. All right. So let us move on now mm-hmm. to the exciting guessing game that that Lisa's about to uh, to uh, propose to me here. So, yeah. Okay. So I accept. Okay. Good. And I don't know why I got onto this topic. It's a weird one. It's not our usual sort of mystery. Okay. No killing. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> It's a change? <laughs> For a change. But yeah, I think uh, maybe I'll preface this with Monty Roberts. You remember him? Of course, the horse yeah, whisperer. Horse whisperer. The so. only guy who ever trained a horse in a round pen. <laughs> yeah, so I remember when he was you know, taking a show on the That road was ironic, and, everyone. Yeah, and he came to Vancouver and uh, basically sold out the Agrodome, which mm-hmm. is a very big venue. And your mom, in her inimitable way, is a basically approached me like a German Shepherd dog and was like, what? You don't believe in, you know, asking me, uh, you, you, uh, you're not going to go see Monty Roberts? You don't believe in it? As though it didn't exist. I'm like, well, I believe in it. It's just like, I don't yeah. subscribe to it, maybe. I don't sure. know. It's just like what he does. I don't know. But yeah, she was very, very offended and seemed to think that I just didn't believe in any of this stuff. So... This is my question for you, sir. Well, that's interesting because we were talking about that terrible man who was a, a terrible abuser. Yeah, Jimmy Williams. Jimmy, yeah. Jimmy Williams, but he used a lot of those techniques yeah, himself way yeah. before Monty, exactly. Monty Roberts was yeah. ever yeah. making a f- fuss about it. Monty Roberts just hyped himself over lots of other people. Oh, sure. There's that Buck yeah. guy, I don't know his yeah. last name. but the Buck Brannaman. Buck yeah. Brannaman, yeah. who was doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, all these people were working in a really brutal training system of, of breaking Western horses. And all they did was take European-style 
horse breaking techniques and transplant them into into Western, you know, probably against a lot of tough, tough guys who wear jean jackets ideas of what they should do. <laughs> and they spat their tobacco juice out in disgust at this whole thing. But, you know, that's all that's basically what it was. Mm-hmm. They were just transplanting more, you know, sophisticated or more mm-hmm. and slightly more. um uh, I don't know how to, the word I'm looking for, but you know, I mean, it was it was easier on the horses, right? Yes, the system that yeah. they were yeah. they, they were more they were humane. yeah, it was more humane. It wasn't this sort of just break them and and throw them out there because you know. And to be fair to the cowboy way of doing it is that those guys were they didn't have time mm-hmm. to yeah. spend, on the job. They're yeah. on the job, yeah, and so the horses had to be on the job too. The horses were treated as poorly as they were. Mm-hmm. You know, like the cowboys in those days were just disposable humans. And so the horses were just the disposable part of the same system. Yeah, yeah, they're all chattel. It doesn't matter yeah. if it's the humans or the animals, for sure. Yeah. yeah, and so these guys, Money Roberts included, were just, yeah, were just part, you know, as part of like a a, a slow uh, revolution of, you know, making a more, I can't think of the word. I, I think maybe more, more kind, animal-centric, perhaps. Uh, or just, yeah, just kinder, Yeah, you know. But anyway, what's what's your question? Do I believe well, that, in Monty Roberts? That was the question pretty much. <laughs> I think you answered it. So is there such a thing as a horse whisperer, really? So that was that was the question to you. So Yeah, well uh, here, let me just but let me pre- preface that slightly then, since you prefaced, I'm gonna preface. This is a all preface show. <laughs> Which is that yeah, I believe there's horse whispers because I believe like a person like yourself have a an innate understanding of horses or a learned understanding of horses because you've been around them your whole life mm-hmm. since you were six years old you've been living with riding training everything about horses yeah. observing observing yeah and so you have a, a, an innate understanding to deal with horses in all kinds of different states and i think that's true of other people too i'm sure i'm sure that's true of money roberts and buck Brannaman and and that jerk guy jimmy williams <laughs> or or lots of people who were, I mean, you can probably name, I can't think of them off, off the top of my head, but, you know, European dressage trainers and people mm-hmm. like that also are horse whisperers. They're right. people who have an innate understanding, can see a horse, can take that horse in hand and get that horse working, you know, t- together with that person. Mm-hmm. Because if you're a horse whisperer, what you understand is that horses, because they're herd animals, you are the, t- the team. Like when they see you and you approach them in a certain way and you start to work with them then you are a team together and then they're there to please you and they want to work with you you know and if you treat them kindly and you you know or firmly and work t- you know towards a goal then they will work with you mm-hmm. you might have to repeat things you might have to do them over and over again but eventually you will get them to where you want and i think and also horses are you know even horses in the wild are domesticated horses so within them is that innate training anyway you know, they are. They were bred to be docile. They were bred to be, mm-hmm. you know, to work with us. You know, the ones that didn't didn't make it. Right. You know, yeah. And so that's a part of the secret as well. But yes, I do think there can be horse whispers. Do you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just think it's not quite the magic that people say it is. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a good point. And there is that magical element to it that a lot of people look at, and it's just kind of like, wow, look at that. <laughs> well, it is magical. Yeah. When you see like a horse yeah, when you flipping see, out. Yeah, when you see it. Yeah. yeah. And then a person, a guy comes in and he puts the rope around its nose slowly. Mm-hmm. He gets the horse used to that and then kind of walks him around and then slowly introduces things. But when you're watching that, you're going, wow, that's magic. Also, you should be thinking to yourself, well, that's a lot. Of, that's instinct as well. Yes, yeah. It's the same instinct that, you know, makes a, an animal, you know, makes a horse get up and start trotting around as soon as it's born. You mm-hmm. know, these are all, it's not a miracle because yeah. that's, they have to do that in the wild. Otherwise mm-hmm. they'd be, they'd be food. So, yeah. you know, these are things that are part of their, their makeup, you right. know? Yeah. I was thinking of that movie, The Rider and that that scene where he has the horse in the round mm-hmm, pen, mm-hmm. and that was not supposed to be part of the film. Okay, he just had a horse that was brought in, and he started working with it, yeah. and and, and they kind of saw what was yeah, yeah. what was happening, and they're like roll camera. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that was apparently it happened in a forty minute period. Mm-hmm. This working with the horse, but yeah, he did that as well. And of course. Uh, these films edit these things down, so mm-hmm. it seems even more miraculous. Mm-hmm. You don't see the tedium of it, of someone right. working 40 minutes over and over again yeah, to, just to get a horse. To, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and getting the horse used to you and yeah. approaching the horse. And, and those things, you know, you can edit, edit them down to look really cool. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, is that, you know, it takes a lot of work. But it still takes also an innate understanding of how mm-hmm. horses... Because when you're coming approaching a horse, you're, you're reading its body language. Yes. You know, and, and if you're 
don't understand that, then you're going to be in trouble. But if you mm -hmm. do understand it, then you're going to have an upper hand on the horse. Yeah. Who, after all, is a horse. Mm -hmm. You know, unlike when I first met horses, when I first started uh, going out with you, and I was scared of these ginormous beasts because they were plotting to kill me. <laughs> then you realize, oh, wait, they don't know that, like, one single swipe of their head, they could bash your brains mm -hmm, out, mm -hmm. you know. They don't, they don't even know that. So yeah. that's not what they're going to do because mm -hmm. it's not how they're trained. They're not trained to be that way, you know. Yeah. They're our friends. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I know, um, I don't know. I don't think you've gone to anything that Andrew McLean has done, but yeah, Dr. Andrew McLean from Australia, he studies how horses learn. Mm -hmm. And one of the things he says is why horses work so well with humans is because of their family structure. Their family sure. structure is very similar to the human family structure. And that's why you can't train a zebra because if you picture a zebra in the wild, they're in this giant herd of 100, 150, 200 zebras all galloping across the yeah. Serengeti or whatever they gallop across. <laughs> and it's an every man for themselves sort of situation. Sure. Like the slowest one is going to get eaten by yeah. the lion. Yeah. Whereas horses in the wild, you've got the dad, so the stallion. Mm -hmm. You've got the main mare. You might have a few others. You've got a few kids hanging around. Um, the, you know teenage son gets kicked out yeah. and that's just a cycle that repeats but it is a yeah very similar size very similar structure mm -hmm. and so that works well with humans and that's another thing that yeah helps them work with us and us work with them hmm. as long as we're open to kind of seeing what they're telling us yeah of yeah. course yeah because some horses are more timid than others and mm -hmm. some horses don't like certain things and other horses like stuff, you know, so mm -hmm. you could have a horse that loves a cross country course. You could have a horse that doesn't like that. You could have a horse yeah. that loves jumping and the horse that doesn't. Mm -hmm. And you kind of have to recognize those parts of them. And that doesn't mean they won't do it. It just means it'll take a little more time mm -hmm. to get them around to that, yeah. that point of view. Or yeah, you as a person might, might have to, uh, Except the fact that, yeah, you're trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. Sure. Maybe that is not the job for that horse, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. So there's that aspect as well. Sure. Oh, that's very true as well. Yeah. Okay. So the definition of horse whisperer, I don't know where I got this from, but it says a person who trains or tames horses with non-aggressive methods, typically using body language and gentle encouragement rather than direct physical contact. And the alternate term is natural horsemanship. So yeah, pretty much what you said. That matches with this. So you're 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 right. One hundred percent. You get an A. <laughs> Thank you. Good job. Thank you. I don't like it connected to natural horsemanship because I think that has a whole philosophy of kookiness that uh, goes beyond <laughs> horse horse whisperer. Well, yeah, I, I think it has. Well, we'll get to that here. I think it has an <laughs> aspect of commercialism. Well, well, as does some of the horse whisperers. But yeah. yeah. Anyway. But I think it. I think it kind of plays off of the sort of poisonous new agey kind of ideas mm -hmm. where you know it's. It's not scientific, but it is scientific, mm -hmm. you know, and we have to believe this, although there's no evidence to why we should believe it, yeah. but, you know, just because that makes you feel good about yourself. Mm -hmm. This is the, this is the way it should be. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think, uh, like Andrew McLean, going back to him, like he says there is a actual scientific name for natural horsemanship, horse whisper, and it's ethology. Um, so, but. It's what, sorry? Ethology. Okay. But it is only one part of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. And the, he believes that, yeah, if you invest 100% of what you are doing and believing and saying into yeah. this, you're missing a whole lot. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, as someone who had to like replace a horseshoe that someone had like, had filed half of it away on the toe and that broken half. And then when I said, oh, what the hell's going on here? I didn't realize they had done it. Mm -hmm. I just thought they got the horse like this. And I was like, who would do something stupid like this to a horseshoe? <laughs> Like they totally wreck the structure of the horseshoe. Right. But that's like, to me, was that was like, the, became the ultimate example of natural mm -hmm. horsemanship to me, mm -hmm. which is senselessness. Like, just, it's true because I want it to be true. Yeah. So the, the horseshoe is bad for the horse's foot because it's not allowing for flexion. So we need to, like, remove part of the horseshoe so it has more, has more bendability. Hmm. Horseshoes already bend. Like, yeah. a horse's weight of the horse and the way the horse's foot works. The horseshoe already is designed to to uh, have some give to it. Yeah. Have some give to it, and to fit all of the all of the anatomical aspects of the mm -hmm. of the way the horse's hoof is shaped. You know, it's curved on the inside. It's straight on the outside. It's got it's got a you know it's uh, got a groove through it. Mm -hmm. You know, and then and then to to destroy the the carefully designed element of the horseshoe to to take out half of the toe mm -hmm. in order so it could quote unquote bend. 
it, all it did was break it yeah. because it, you you took away the, its uh, uh, the strength of it. You right, know? the integrity. The integrity, yeah. yeah. And so, by the way, I never got invited back to the house <laughs> after that. And I had been chewing there for about a year. So. Oh dear. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's look at where the term horse whisperer originated. So basically, the, yeah, the term, I never heard about it until the 90s, for sure. So the term horse whisperer came to greater public consciousness in the late 20th century with the release of ne- Nicholas Evans' 1995 novel, The Horse Whisperer. Oh, yeah. And the subsequent 1998 Robert Redford film based on that novel. With the young Scarlett Johansson. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, okay. Good. And then if, you know, if we're looking at judging horse movies, that's, that's a pretty good horse movie yeah i didn't see it but you went and saw it with your friend Mm -hmm. so parallel to this the concept of horse whisper at the same time gained a lot of popularity in the late 20th century additionally through the efforts of professional horsemen u.s horseman monty roberts who's well known for his live demos of his joined up method which he advertises as being a natural non-violent method of horse training so Roberts went on to write many books and was the focus of numerous numerous documentaries, including the 1998 documentaries Robert or Monty Roberts, A Real Horse Whisperer, and Shy Boy. I think I've seen both of those. I think he also had one called Ain't I Something. <laughs> so due to Robert's extensive media exposure, many who had never heard the term horse whisperer previously were under the impression that Roberts was the inspiration for Evans' novel. But Evans has stated that the protagonist in his novel was based on American horse trainer Buck Brannaman, who practiced in the Vaquero tradition. Hmm. And there is a documentary about Buck, Buck mm-hmm. Brannaman called Buck, and it's a very good film. It is, yeah. It is... Uh, pretty outstanding, I think, when it comes to like looking at horses and training horses, mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. So, Branneman himself was mentored by and g- gives great credit or gave great care- credit to noted horseman Ray Hunt, who was himself a follower of Cowboy Brothers Tom and Bill Dorrance. So, each of these men have variously been called the original horse whispers. However, the earliest use of the term in print dates back to the mid-19th century, hmm. when it was first used by art journal editor and writer Samuel Carter Hall. Interesting. Fun fact. Okay. Hall is said to have been the inspiration for the character Pecksniff in Dickens' Martin Chuzzlewit. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. He was not a well-liked person. <laughs> I don't know that character, but yeah. Well, his name implies mm-hmm. all you need to say. Pecksniff, yeah. Yeah, he was, um, yeah, he was an, anyway, I read a bit about him, but yeah, he sounded like an interesting person, but, but in a negative way. <laughs> and it didn't seem like he had a lot to do with horses, but obviously at that time, horses were just part of Amazing. your general environment. Amazing. So. It's one of, it was one of the most mind-blowing things to read the uh, Dickens novel, I think it was Dombey and Son, and there's a scene in it when two of the protagonists, or two of the characters in the book, are riding their horses through London. Just like riding their horses to go somewhere through London. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, it never occurred to me that, because you'd see like carriages. Yeah, carriages. Yeah. you see carriages like taking people around. But you never, I never thought of like people just hopping on a horse and riding <laughs> to someone's house. It seems so crazy. But you know, anywhere you go in London, that, where is there, there's a muse, like mm-hmm. a place called yeah. the muse was when formerly stables. stables. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So who were thought to be the first horse whispers? And if this uh, term dates back to the mid 19th century. So. In the same way, current horse whisperers such as Monty Roberts and Pat Pirelli have taken their shows on the road, demonstrating their horse training methods to large crowds. In the latter part of the 19th century, men from the New World came over to the UK to show off what appeared to be their seemingly magical skills with horses. So they performed demonstrations that amazed people by taking wild, savage, and uncontrollable horses, then almost instantly taming them through what appeared to be mysterious means. (laughs) So while the average person who worked with horses recognized that the conventional training of horses was a process that typically takes years to create a finished product, (laughs) people became mystified when certain individuals were able to get horses to capitulate in minutes rather than years, especially when the horses involved had been labeled as difficult rogues. (laughs) Okay, that's interesting because we were just sort of talking about this with training horses and the fact that 
you were saying like most people rush the training mm -hmm. and so they get the horse to do a few key things but really it's not ready for competition it's not ready for real riding yet mm -hmm. it just has a few of the basic fundamentals right and this is the same thing you know yes you can get a horse to like run around or even under saddle in a relatively short amount of time but that's more than like getting a horse to have rhythm and, and mm -hmm. all the other things that you mm -hmm. need a horse to have in order to to be a true you know athlete yeah. athlete or useful or, horse. and educated enough to yeah, yeah do yeah. a particular job yeah, yeah. okay so john solomon rary of Ohio was well known for his abilities in the rehabilitation of abused and vicious horses and in 1858 was summoned to Windsor Castle to work with a particularly dangerous and unmanageable horse owned by Queen Victoria. Hmm. Rary stepped into the stall with the horse, closed the door and emerged three hours later with a completely docile horse <laughs> who never again reverted to his former behaviors. Queen Victoria was so thrilled with Rary's accomplishment that she gifted the horse to him, and Rary returned to North America with the horse, where they performed together in more live demos. The horse outlived Rary by 12 years, and Rary left very precise and in-depth notes for those who were caring for the horse after Rary's passing. Interesting. It's interesting that he did that in a stall, though. Mm -hmm, with the door closed. But there must have been bigger stalls in those days, though, too. Yes. Well, I think, like, if you look at, um, from the Pony Club manual, uh, the size of a horse box stall was 12 feet by 14 feet. Yeah, that's so pretty that's big. pretty big. Yeah. yeah cause I think now we're looking at 10 by 8 or whatever yeah, for yeah, the average yeah. stall size. I'm so, just basing that on watching all creatures great and small. Oh, Okay. <laughs> So it turns out that what Rary did behind those closed doors was what later became known as a Rary technique, which involved tying up a horse's leg and laying the horse down. Then Rary would proceed to pat and stroke the horse all over its body, proving to the traumatized horse that it was in no danger. Today, there's a lot of research to show that training techniques such as this, particularly ones where a horse is bound and unable to escape, create a form of learned helplessness. The horse then becomes non-reactive due to the perception that they are unable to escape danger. They develop measurable dopamine deficits in the brain, which in turn alter their normal or natural behavior. Hmm. So, like I can remember our old farrier before you, and he was a quarter horse guy, and he would often refer to horses as broke to death. Okay. And that's something you see a lot in quarter horses. Like, they can be very hard, put a lot of pressure on them. To the point that the horses just like shut down and just do what they're supposed to do and don't blink, don't react, don't yeah. look at anything. And the other sort of horses that you see often in that situation are like school horses in school horse barns. Yeah. And they'll just, when they're, even when they're not working, they just go, they go walk into their stall, they stand, they stare at the wall. They just don't react to their environment at all. That's sad. I know, I know. It's super sad. But yeah, they're just completely shut down. So not, not ideal. Anyway, going on. So another well-known horseman of the 19th century came to the UK 30 years after Rary. So an Australian self-proclaimed scientific horsebreaker and trainer called Frederick Her Henry Etride was traveling through Europe, appearing in a gypsy-run carnival. But then he invented, reinvented himself as Sidney Galvain, Dr. Sidney Galvain. Oh, I've heard the name. Yes. Because of Galvain's... Groove. Groove, yeah, yeah. that's right. The tooth. So, yeah, he published a best-selling book on equine dentition and toured the Western world as a one-man act, both taming and aging horses in sideshow and carnival-like settings. His shows were very popular at the time, and he's still remembered today for the marker he identified, the Galvain's Groove, which is still used in the aging of horses. So yeah, upper corner incisor, and it's a line that runs down. But yeah, I think often, as with many things, I remember thinking this in sociology, this was named a such and such thing. And I'm like, well, everyone knows that. But I think he was the guy that maybe noted it, wrote it down. But I'm sure a lot of other people hadn't noticed it. And yeah. he was able to really shock people. Oh, yeah, this is horses 15 years old. Yeah. This horse is, yeah. But not, and not to stereotype, but if he was doing a lot of touring with gypsies and stuff like that, noted horse traders who would mm -hmm. have had a real uh, interest in all the... Yeah. somewhat questionable <laughs> ways as well as you know just exactly. as knowing these things you mm -hmm. know like how to how to get rid of the the galvain's groove in order to make a horse look younger etc yeah. yeah 
So it says, however, almost a full century before these men were touring, certain British horsemen were figuratively elevated above the average person as they had been observed demonstrating what was then believed to be magical powers over horses. <laughs> the qualities they demonstrated revolved around incredible, almost supernatural abilities that controlled the horse's actions and behaviors. So it was believed that these horsemen were able to get horses to stop and walk at will. So that not obviously when someone's on them or leading them or anything. Mm -hmm. Some reported witnessing bizarre feats being performed. Others felt these horsemen had supernatural powers. While some felt these acts were performed using a form of witchcraft. <laughs> so speaking well, of non-scientific. Yeah, I was going to say it's all very reasonable mm -hmm. assumptions. Yeah. So one example of these abilities re was related about a horseman called Mervyn Cater of Redgrave, Suffolk who was observed to be able to keep his horses in a field for five days at a time without the use of a gate. And another example, and in that, that doesn't sound like a lot, but just having tried to stop Harris from coming barging through the <laughs> gate today, that, that's pretty significant. It um, is. He almost came out through the stall as well. <laughs> so anyway, in another example, Cater was able to convince a pony continue, to continue working simply by talking to it. Another demonstration witnessed by Minnie and reported by Cater's son Walter was given at a demonstration where a team of horses were harnessed and hitched to a pitchfork that was stuck in a manure pile. Urged into action, the horses pulled and strained but were unable to move the pitchfork. Members of the crowd would then be asked to come forward to remove the fork, which they could easily do. Cater would then rehitch the horses, who once again would demonstrate... They were unable to make the pitchfork budge. <laughs> Walter Cater himself was never sure how his father was able to do this trick, but he did recall it was always performed in winter, never in summer. Ah. Hmm. So going back even further, however, will take us to the origin of the first horse whisperers. Britain's agricultural revolution had created an enormous societal change. Food production was immensely important in sustaining the rising population and was intertwined with both improved methods of farming and transportation. Concurrent to this was the rise in the occupational importance of specific individuals responsible for food production. These people were those who worked with horses. <laughs> so the original horse whispers. For centuries, the people who had control of fire, metal, and horses were of a fundamental importance to the advancement of Western civilization. Their skills and knowledge helped transform military history, agricultural practices, and industrial development. I was at a talk, and the lady was actually saying that the societies that had horses moved forward in like civilization, in quotation marks, <laughs> much faster. Makes sense. Um, yeah. Yeah. So Because they had, they had slave labor. Yeah, I guess. So, <laughs> in the case of the horse whispers, their skill became so finely tuned that their abilities were viewed through a mystical lens and ultimately were attributed to them having magical abilities. Some people became convinced that these practices were founded in witchcraft. So, young Makes men sense. with this gift were also thought to have magical abilities to control and influence women. <laughs> and in England, were referred to as witches, horse warlocks, and whisperers. Hmm. The control of any farm animal was a trait attributed to both witches and the cunning folk, in quotation marks, in the English folk tradition. I see. So the, where these people were, these original horse whisperers, obviously it was in the UK, but um, they originated primarily in northwest Scotland and later spread to East Anglia. So East Anglia, I think that's around where that Walter Cater was. I see. So, in the 18th century, um, we had seen the development of the Clydesdale horse in Scotland that was bred from imported Flemish stallions. So, the Industrial Revolution of the 18th and 19th century also saw great technological advances, including advances in plow materials and design. So, these advances created a situation where only one man was required to work a field, and he could do so in less time and with more precision than ever before. So, we needed less manpower, but we needed one specific guy to be able to get this job done and do it <laughs> yeah, faster yeah, yeah. with the use of a horse. So draft horses. Draft horse uh, is a purpose-bred workhorse and also known as a heavy horse. Some common breeds of draft horse include Clydesdale, Percheron, Belgian, Shire. Mm. So the nature of the draft horse is 
particular as it's quite different from that of other equine types. So a type is different from a breed in that it references phenotypes over genotypes. So what a horse looks like and is suitable for rather than his genetic lineage. I see. So characteristics of a draft horse revolve around important qualities that have been selectively bred into this highly domesticated equine. So qualities such as intelligence and strength. So the strong beast of burden is tall, large-footed, and heavily muscled, and weighs in at about 2,000 pounds. That's, I'll say large-footed, mm-hmm. like pie plates. Yeah. The massive draft horse can be physically intimidating to the uninitiated. So you were just talking about <laughs> but draft horses are even bigger than regular horses, obviously. Yeah, I'd say docility is also something that's bred into them. Because mm-hmm. that's something like I know with like Percherons and Frisians that if they act up, then they it's, you can't get the... You can't get them uh, like your breed certification, so they won't be allowed to be oh, Frisians right, yes. or Bertrands right, if yeah. they're too hot mm-hmm. because they're too dangerous. Yeah. Then, so yeah, for sure. And imagine Clydes would be the same that mm-hmm. you'd want to have yeah. a lineage of, of <laughs> softness. Not you don't want them to be too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, non-reactive. <laughs> so the traits of this gentle giant are the result of centuries of selective breeding that specifically focused on qualities beyond the purely physical, so just what you were talking about, to emphasize a calm, quiet, even temperament. Mm. So the draft horse is patient, tranquil, and tolerant, and very willing to learn. Uh, due to its lower skin-to-muscle ratio, the draft horse is also more susceptible to dehydration and heat stress. Uh, its incredibly efficient metabolism allows this horse to work while requiring far fewer calories comparatively. Wow. Uh, modern, modern findings in medicine have also revealed that the draft horse requires far less tranquilizer than any other or other horse breeds and types. <laughs> so like uh, Scotty, who was at the barn with yeah. Archie last year, he's a Belgian cross. And he takes way less tranquilizer than any other horse for medical procedures. I see. Shockingly. Yeah. <laughs> for how big he is. Yeah, for how big he is. Yeah. Uh, and I can see why, why the like the tractor revolution was so traumatic for some people, too, because these horses, because of their friendliness and, mm-hmm. you know, their tameness and docility, were so like family right. to people. The idea of getting rid of these horses so you could replace them with tractors was so mm-hmm. difficult, you know, like personally difficult. Yeah. Obviously, it made economic sense, but... Mm-hmm in terms of like what these horses meant for generations. You yeah. Know? And I think like even if you think of the book Animal Farm, like who was the one character who was just like Major pure, purely honest was it Major? I thought his name was Boxer. I mean his name was Boxer, yeah. I can't remember now. Yeah. But I mean he was he was just like an honest worker. He went out, he worked an honest day all the time. I mean he was who he was. Yeah. And yeah. Did he get sent uh, to the camps? Exploit- it was, yeah, he was exploited. <laughs> Sounds like a kulak to me. Yeah. Okay, so these people. So the original horse whispers, um, individuals who we will refer to as the horsemen, were men who worked with horses in farm settings. So typically they were plowmen, but could also be farriers or blacksmiths. The horses being used on farms were usually draft horses. Uh, this is an advancement from the oxen that had been previously used in northeast Scotland and East Anglia, or the ponies that had been u- in common use in Caithness, northern Scotland, and the Orkney Islands. Hmm. So socially, the men would have come from a lower socioeconomic class, but their skills with horses at this time of great change improved their social standing and economic importance. While most farms at these times would still have been in the possession of large landowners, the abilities of these horsemen were seen as such a valuable asset that the individual's rank rose considerably within the farm's hierarchy. They gained status, respect, and were given professional autonomy. They were typically in great demand, which resulted in them being well-treated by employers. They could demand a good wage, were provided decent food and housing, and overall experienced much improved working conditions compared to other farm workers. They also achieved personal and social authority, which improved the young men's chances of being able to marry well. So consequently, these horsemen had a great influence on the character of Scottish rural societies and its culture, as well as animal welfare, so care and training. So a horseman is nothing without his horse. The care and training of the horse is the, of the utmost importance. The animal's welfare is paramount. So those in East Anglia benefited from their exposure to gypsies and travelers who were renowned for their abilities with horses. 
Additionally, this region was long known for its lengthy equine history, having been the territory of the Iron Age Iceni, who were noted horse breeders and trainers. Breeds such as the Suffolk Punch, the Norfolk Roadster, and the Norfolk Trotter were all products of this region. Ah, those are three great names. Mm-hmm. So those in northern Scotland generally had more limited exposure to horses, and therefore anyone with a good knowledge base on the health and welfare of horses would have highly valuable information at the time of the introduction of workhorses to farms. Yeah. Today's emphasis on animal husbandry and ethical equine care and training has its roots in this time in the UK. Um, and the UK has continued with this vein today in its teachings hmm. and just general philosophy towards horses. Yeah. Um, the horse is a big part of British culture as seen in the prominence of various diverse equine activities over the centuries, such as a sport of fox hunting, the development of the sport of kings racing, the organization and training developed by the cavalry, the inception of the pony club, and the UK's dominance of Olympic-level horse sports, particularly eventing. <laughs> Wealthy landowners possessed not just the land, but the horses, the tack, the equipment, and ultimately the crop that was produced. So they held the power. But a tipping of the scales had increased the importance of the horsemen, which allowed them the power to band together, and as a result, protect one another from this one-sided economic system. This resulted in a positive effect on their working conditions. So these horsemen ultimately moved into working as a fraternal order or society, similar to that of the Freemasons, although their organization was a largely unofficial one. They denied acting as a trade union. <laughs> the organization was designed to protect trade secrets, ensure that members were properly trained, maintain a good quality of work, ensure appropriate remuneration for work, and help defend the rights of the member against the wealthy landowners. This united front protected not just the horsemen, but also the horses themselves from those who heap too many demands on them. In some ways, the order helped to compel horsemen to rise to a higher standard in equine health and welfare, thus serving as a prototype of animal welfare organizations. A horseman could receive a societal demotion through the eyes of his fellow horsemen for the ill treatment of his horses. The benefits to both man and horse were undeniable. This society was viewed as a desirable organization for one to be a member of, and it aimed to include all horsemen. All qualified members were welcome, and while the rules varied from place to place, in general, entrance involved being a minimum of 16 years of age. Hmm. Members had to be invited to join. The invitation would come in the form of a letter that was placed on the potential initiate's pillow during the night of either their 16th <laughs> or 18th birthday. <laughs> really? Yeah. This is like a super weird. Yeah. Yeah. When like they woke a horse up, fairy. Yeah. When they woke up, an envelope would be there containing an elaborately tied horse tail hair, which was the in the invitation. Yeah. The initiate the initiation typically took place in an isolated barn at midnight under a full moon. The initiation always featured thirteen initiates, each of whom would have to bring with them a loaf of bread, a jar of jam, and a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> Each initiate would have to perform a task or ritual. The dramatic In involving the loaf of bread and the jam no, and whiskey. No, no, okay. I think they had to do some little thing, and then I think all that stuff was just because they had a party afterwards. Okay. <laughs> so the dramatic ceremonies use heightened language, the yeah. trading of various secrets such as a Masonic type oath, yeah. uh, gestures, passwords, and handshakes. Sure. Inductees would be invited to stand before an individual known as the High Horseman, who would be holding a goat's foot. What? Yeah. Inductees were then blindfolded, stripped to the waist, spun around, and then the High Horseman would ask questions of the crowd, who replied with a set series of answers. <laughs> the inductee would then have to kneel. The blindfold would be removed. The inductee would vow to keep the group's secrets, and then he would shake hands with the devil, which was a branch or a pole wrapped in fur. Sometimes a trick would be played on the inductee to test his resolve in not revealing secrets. Yes. If he failed, he would be subject to physical punishment. <laughs> there was a semi-religious element to the initiation, as the Bible was typically used, although in some cases the Bible was used as part of the qualifying of a prospect of members. 
In some areas, prospective members had to attend church for three years and read the Bible three times before being invited to join. So during the ceremony, emphasis was placed on the horseman treating his horse as he wished to be treated himself. An actual spoken word would be passed on. This was said to give one complete control over a horse. Once whispered, the horseman would be able to bring any horse under control, resulting in the term horse whisperer. Once their ritual was finished, the horseman's creed would be recited, a keili would be held, toasts were made, and the whiskey would be consumed. <laughs> so the magic, in quotation marks, word that was passed on to initiates varied from place to place, but was often sic jubeo, Latin for conquer this way, or ino, one spelled backwards, implying that the horse and the horseman have to work as a team or one to be successful. Oh, that's true. The final ritual involved instructions for the horseman to sleep with an oat cake in his armpit. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not eat it afterwards. <laughs> well, someone's going to eat it. We'll tell you more about that now. Membership in the society provided an environment where an exchange of information from member to member could occur freely. Much of this information was based on behavioral observations. Two primary skills were taught, called drawing and jading. So drawing was inducing a horse to walk forward seemingly unbidden, while jading was inducing of a horse to stop, once again seemingly unbidden. These were tricks that took advantage of a horse's acute sense of smell, the horseman received instruction in the preparation of herbs and oils that worked to influence a horse's action through its sense of smell. Hmm. Attractively scented items used to draw horses included peppermint, licorice, cinnamon, and linseed. If the substance was an oil, the trainer would wipe it on his forehead and then would stand in front of the horse and draw him forward. Smells that were used to calm horses down included concoctions that were a mix of oil of thyme, cinnamon, rosemary, and nut that would then be rubbed on the horse's nose. Hmm. The horsemen were big users of treats, which is actually treats right now in the horse world. Like there's this huge thing with feeding treats. Oh, really? Positive reinforcement. People call it P plus. Um, yeah, it's all over the internet at the moment, but yeah. I mean, it goes all the way back. It's not new. It goes back to the order. Yeah. So the horsemen were big users of treats and were advised to carry a ball of oatmeal and honey in their armpit at all times. <laughs> so by feeding the horse treats, the individual could make the horse more compliant, thus giving the carrier more power over the horse. So was the idea of the armpit, is this supposed to be secreted away so that I think, the, yeah, the owners don't see this, so they don't know what the magic yes, is yeah. uh, happening? And then probably it's adding like salt to it as well <laughs> I guess so. it is but oh, yeah. i mean horses like a salt of, adding a lot of stuff yeah. to it so a lot of cheese as well so <laughs> i mean this, this isn't this isn't terrible because you know unlike what you would have had before this would be a lot of individuals secreting away their the things that they did from each other mm -hmm. and so you'd have like no forward motion Correct. of, of yeah. learning yeah whereas now you have like an organization kind of like the same thing would happen with like when scientists formed mm -hmm. their 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 order in the during elizabethan times and stuff like that where you know like the newton and people like that where you had like uh an exchange of mm -hmm. of information then that that helped to propel things forward yeah. because then everyone wasn't working everyone wasn't working simultaneously the same thing secretly from each other uh -huh. and just getting nowhere at least right. they could pool the resources mm -hmm. and and move ahead inch by inch yeah so that's interesting yeah it is yeah i mean besides all the obvious like phony baloney stuff they just <laughs> threw in there to well, to make I, it mystical and make yeah. it you know make it impressive for the for think, local yokels yeah you need something to be a draw you need to attract people's mm -hmm. attention mm -hmm. right and so i think that's the purpose of that sort of thing yeah but then the actual positive benefit the was yeah, this yeah. open communication and the sharing of knowledge. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Okay, so jading uh, could be accomplished by taking an unpleasant smell and rubbing it in the horse's path so that it could would not move. So the use of a dead mole was common <laughs> and specific to East Anglia. The use of bones of a toad so specifically the natterjack toad or bufo calamita were used. So natterjack toad used to be quite common, but is now endangered. Only one or two colonies exist in East Anglia, <laughs> a few scattered around in other parts of the UK. Blame horsemen for this. Mm -hmm. 
Another method on record was the use of mercury mixed with broken glass. <laughs> so this was obviously not a positive practice when it comes to animal welfare. No, not good for the the handler because no. they probably didn't know that mercury has, can soak into your skin and cause mm-hmm. uh, cause um, craziness. Well, craziness, yeah, you would start to get um, oh. uh, like a Parkinson's almost right. like you'd start to have tremors from mm-hmm. it. So, additionally, horsemen were said to practice whispering their secret word in the horse's ear to get them to do work or become more compliant. However, some feel this was little more than a trick and feel that substances were used on the horse or the appearance of whispering was, in fact, the horseman merely blowing in the horse's ear. (laughs) So, the rise and fall of the horseman. Improved working conditions are always a big draw, as is the opportunity to be mentored. Upon its inception, involvement with the horsemen became highly desirable. Now, creating a situation so that those who were eligible to join were aware of the order and became interested was done through attracting members with demonstrations of the aforementioned trickery. Oh, I think I just said that. Um, <laughs> I'd forgotten all about that. <laughs> Additionally, sometimes, actually, this particular story was going to be our final story of season one. Okay. But then I discovered that story about the gamblers. And so <laughs> I inserted it like literally at the last minute. And then l- later I read this story. And I'm like, this is weird. Why did I think that was going to be the end of the season? Anyway, I, but then I read it and I like it. It's, it's funny. It's, it's good. Um, so anyway, additionally, sometimes individuals were manipulated into joining through more coercive methods, such as tampering with their horses or tact to elicit strug- sluggish responses or poor behavior from the horse. So tacks or other foreign objects would be put under the horse's tack to irritate the so equipment yeah. to irritate the horse, uh, causing the horses to misbehave or foul smelling substances would be put on the horse's noses so they wouldn't go forward. Individuals would then be eager to join so they could be privy to the secrets in quotation marks of the horseman. So in some ways, I have this in italics, um, this is not a lot different from current practices found in both the show and racehorse industries, where some notable and highly successful riders and trainers have been later shown to have used negative, unethical, or sometimes even illegal tactics, I'm talking about drugs, um, to win, uh, all while presenting a highly curated, positive, and knowledgeable image to the public and their peers. Yeah, yeah. So, the Horseman organization rose in prominence and popularity through the 19th century and was known variously around the UK as the Brotherhood of the Horseman's Word, the Horseman's Word, the Society of the Horseman's Grip and Word, or just the Word, or the Secret Society of Horsemen. Make up your mind. Yeah. In England, they were known as the Society of Horsemen or Whisperers. Some less savory names for this group in England also included Horse Witches and Horse Warlocks. Over time, skeptics of the horsemen arose. Some were unimpressed by the trickery involved. Others felt the organization was overhyped and had a a simplistic basis, as evidenced in the 1879 book, Eleven Years at Farm Work, Being a True Tale of Farm Servant Life, which was written by a plowman turned grocer, where it was stated that, and this is a quotation, without betraying any secret, it may be said that the real philosophy of the horseman's world consists of the thorough, careful, and kind treatment of the animals, combined with a reasonable amount of knowledge of their anatomical and physiological structure, end quote. More so, however, it was a changing society that saw membership of the horsemen dwindle. Rising literacy rates meant that knowledge was more readily available and accessible through books. Mm. The huge war efforts and subsequent rise in the cavalry early in the 20th century further aided in the spread of equine knowledge. Following World War II in particular, the rapid mechanization of the Western world saw the agricultural front shift from horse-drawn equipment to tractors and other mechanized form of power resulting in a sharp decline of horses on farms. But a rapid increase of, aye, Mr. Ariot. (laughs) Got to get rid of the old gal. (laughs) Yeah. So the horseman's word, by the 1950s, became a working man's club that existed to ensure the well-being of the members, but had little to do with horses. As recently as the 1990s, small groups of the original version of the horsemen were believed to exist in diminished capacities. Most, rec- most recently in the Orkney Islands, as Baron Kilm- Kilmarnock claims membership, having been initiated in Sandwick, Orkney, near Scarabray in 1983. <laughs> now, I have a relative 
in Orkney, who is an old horseman. And actually, the very first time I went to Orkney, yeah, 1972, I was really little, but I remember we went to this fair, for, like a agricultural fair, sure. and there was this huge like thing about all these plowmen, and there was a plowing competition, and then there was this um, all these all these decorated kids who were plowers or something. It was weird. Anyways, I have a picture of it. Yeah. I, it's it's uh, upstairs. I'll show it to you. But it's, um, yeah, it was a very weird thing. And I remember being mystified at, about it at the time. Yeah. Because obviously people weren't using horses to plow even then. Yeah, yeah. And why are we having this big thing? So anyways, when after I read this, I contacted this relative of mine um, to ask about if he knew anything about this horse. Because it was his brother was... He had won this competition. I see. And he never got back to me. So I guess it's still a secret. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I, I think he knows about it. Case closed. Yeah. So anyway, fast forward to the 21st century. So Dr. Andrew McLean, who I talked about at the beginning, he's a PhD from Tasmania, Australia. He's a world-renowned scholar who specializes in equine behavior. So he equates horse whispering or natural horsemanship to the scientific term ethology, which focuses on instinct and instinctive behavior. Hmm. So while he acknowledges that this sphere of information is useful in training horses, he also points out it is not a magical cure-all and is only a piece of the puzzle. So another noted Australian horseman, Neil Davies, concurs, having stated in an article entitled, There is no such thing as a horse whisperer, what his quote was, There are no special gifts of secret magical powers when it comes to training horses. Mm -hmm. No one can teach a horse by whispering or looking into its eyes. No one can apply some secret process and have horses instantly understand everything forevermore. There's always a simple and logical reason why horses respond as they do. The trouble is that sometimes a horse understands what the trainer wants and responds accordingly, even though an observer can't see or understand what's happening. The next minute, people say that the trainer has a special gift or a magical connection. He has those in quotation marks. Yeah. Lots of trainers are able to do amazing things with horses. Horse training is logic, not magic. And there's also a perfectly logical reason why a horse bucks, rears, misbehaves, or resists. So, end quote. So essentially, horse whisperers are, use keen observational skills to detect how a horse is feeling and how those feelings are changing. The horse whisperer reacts to these feelings in an appropriate way, to an appropriate level, and at the correct time, using body language primarily to connect with and ultimately influence the horse's behavior. So going back to Davies' countryman and contemporary Dr. Andrew McLean, um, McLean states that behavior is just an instinct and it's just a template that behavior sits on. And so that can only take you so far. Going beyond that, behavior can either be enhanced or denied through learning. So yeah, he always talks about putting training, putting learning over top of the, the basic behavior, the basic, they don't use the word personality, but yeah, the horse is kind of natural um, reactivity or whatever. Inclination. Yeah. yeah. So McLean goes on to say that in good horse training, in addition to ethology, the trainer or handler must also be cognizant of learning theory or behaviorism, like Skinner, uh, cognition and biomechanics. Additional factors that influence the success of the training of a horse will also include factors such as human psychology. So if a person is fearful approaching a horse, that's going to affect the horse. If a person is angry approaching the horse, then that's going to affect the outcome as well. Likewise, the management of the horse's environment, so healthcare, nutrition, exercise, consistency in dealing with a horse in all areas is going to affect the outcome and the training process. So an understanding of the sport is also important. So given all that, McLean acknowledges that some aspect of equine behavior are hardwired around social organization and herd behavior. Uh, as are dominance and submission. So he states that no horse is ever dominant more than 70% of the time. He references the fear-flight response and the fact that horses are resource or food-driven. So hence that popularity right now of uh, the R2, is that what it's called? P2, you said. P2, yeah. Uh, P plus. Um, oh, sorry, P plus. Yeah, positive. P pods. Positive reinforcement. P pods. Uh, so, given that information, it is easy to see 
how modern-day horse whispers have been able to capitalize on their demonstrations and clinics, and capitalize many have. So Monty Roberts is now in his late 70s, but for many decades he toured relentlessly all over the Western world, and book sales continued or contributed to that income, which is purported to be anywhere from 1.5 million to 99.7 million, depending upon which source you look. Uh, another prominent natural horseman trainer, natural horsemanship trainer, Pat Pirelli, also has spent decades touring and sells videos and products. Um, various sources estimate his net worth as anywhere between 1.5 to 12, 12 million. And another source has his annual income at 4 million. So local trainer Will Clinging stated in a recent ar- article in Horse Journal. So here's a quote. As a trainer, when I look at any horse magazine, I see other trainers marketing themselves and their methods, promising that their way is natural, natural, kinder, and gentler. I myself was guilty of this when I started. It has essentially been forced upon trainers to do this to make a living. It is hard to make a good living in the horse training business, so using any advantage with the paying public makes it easier to survive. So when the public says that they want a better relationship with their horse and they want to use a natural method, that is what they get. All this marketing has created a generation of horse people who are more concerned with the popular appeal of the methods they are using than with the substance of that they are teaching the horse. The method many people choose to use with their horses is largely decided upon by which trainer had the better marketing method rather than the core of the program itself. The offer to have everything we want with our horse if you just follow step one, step two, and step three is powerful. There are certainly those who do want more down-to-earth training, but finding a trainer who is all about the horse can be difficult. End quote. So that is the end of our story. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. So what is the title of this episode then? The title of the episode was Horse Whispers, Fact or Fiction? (laughs) In Search of Horse Whispers. Mm -hmm. That was interesting. That was interesting because, uh, well, it's something that's always fascinated me and I've always been a bit of a skeptic about it, but I've kind of come like a sort of halfway between the two that I think, uh, and I think that's a really clever thing that, like I said at the end there, that... You know, what happens when, you know, like when you, it's the same in politics, when you allow ideology to overrule practicality, Mm -hmm. then you have problems. Yeah. So when you decide that things should be this way because you think they should be that way, Mm -hmm. you know, horses, say, for instance, horses shouldn't wear shoes, you know, and so then that's more natural because horses in nature don't wear shoes. And so blah, blah, blah. But the thing is that you don't have horses in nature. You have horses in unnatural situations. You have them in barns. You have them on gravel roads. You have them in sand rings. Mm-hmm. You have all these things that horses don't deal with in nature. And so those things require a horse to be shod in order to successfully navigate those sort of terrains. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just one of those things where the ideology is outstripping the reality, the practical reality of right. what's actually kinder for horses. Mm-hmm. You know, horses don't actually mind getting their horses, sh- their feet shod. In most cases, you know, a, a good horse doesn't mind, mm-hmm. obviously. There are bad horses who mind everything. Right. And it's, this is not just shoes, it's everything that they're against. So, yeah, it's just a, it's, it's an odd, uh, I just, yeah. That's sort of what I react against now. Mm-hmm. And also uh, taking half of the shoe away by, <laughs> by rasping, it, <laughs> rasping a, a big giant wedge out of your, mm-hmm. your shoe. Don't do that. No. That's not, it's not natural. Mm-hmm. It's not even practical. No. It's just silly. So yeah, there we go. Unfortunately, this episode we have no we had no comments in our last episode. Very sad. So everyone, don't make us sad. Write in and say something. Write in and talk about what do you think about Horse Whispers? What did you think of the hor- the, the film The Horse Whisperer starring Robert Redford as a gruff western guy and not a LA dude? <laughs> Whose summer's in, in Aspen, or winter's in Aspen. What did you think of that film with a young Scarlett Johansson? We'd like to know. I've never seen it, actually. No, haven't you? No, I was kind of put... Because, mm. you know, I was sort of put off by yeah. Monty Roberts, the yeah. uh, the hype machine. So it kind of it spoiled the whole idea of Horse Whisperer to me. But having seen Buck Brannaman's film, or the movie about him, Buck, I am kind of more curious about it now. But yeah, let us know what you think about that film. What do you think about the subject? To do so, you can write to us at our website. It's called sneakydragon.com. 
uh, there you'll find this episode, and underneath it you will find a space for you to uh, unleash your fury at Horse Whisperers, or unleash your fury at us for putting them down, because maybe you <laughs> love Horse Whisperers and think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread, or bread and jam with a bottle of whiskey. You can also get in touch with us at our email at sneakyd at sneakydragon.com, and we have a Facebook page called Sneaky Dragon as well, which you're welcome to write to us there. Hey everyone, thank you for listening to this episode. We think very highly of you. And we will see you again in two weeks for our final episode of the season, which is going to be entitled, dear, what is it going to be called? This final episode? Shocking. It's called Shocking? Yeah. Oh, I like it. That's you a... won't. <laughs> Damn it. It's a shocking end of this episode, everyone. We'll be back next time. We hope to see you then. Bye. Bye. Bye.